Hello again, I'm Richard Figge, and this is For Reading Out Loud. So good to have you with me. Tonight's author is the Russian writer Anton Chekhov. He was originally a medical doctor, but from student days was also a writer of prose sketches. He gained fame as a dramatist with such plays as Uncle Vanya, The Cherry Orchard, and The Three Sisters. He is also considered one of the great masters of the short story. If there is a challenge in reading his stories, I think it may be because we bring the wrong expectations to his writing. He was never interested in elaborate plots, clever for the sake of cleverness. He described Russian life of his time with an unobtrusive style. He was more interested in character and relationships than he was in dramatic events. Sometimes beginning with apparent trivialities, he was able to look deeply into his characters and reveal their plights and emotions. Sometimes they are tragic. Sometimes he looks at his characters without judging them, but with a tolerant and amused gaze, as in tonight's two stories, both of which just happen to take place on trains. The First Class Passenger by Anton Chekhov A first-class passenger who had just dined at the station and drunk a little too much lay down on the velvet-covered seat stretched himself out luxuriously, and sank into a doze. After a nap of no more than five minutes, he looked with oily eyes at his vis-a-vis, gave a smirk, and said, "'My father, of blessed memory, used to like to have his heels tickled by peasant women after dinner. I am just like him, with this difference, that after dinner I always like my tongue and my brains gently stimulated.' Sinful man as I am, I like empty talk on a full stomach. Will you allow me to have a chat with you? I shall be delighted, answered the vis-a-vis. After a good dinner, the most trifling subject is sufficient to arouse devilishly great thoughts in my brain. For instance, we saw just now near the refreshment bar two young men, and you heard one congratulate the other on being celebrated. I congratulate you, he said. You are already a celebrity and are beginning to win fame. Evidently, actors or journalists of microscopic dimensions. But they are not the point. The question that is occupying my mind at the moment, sir, is exactly what is to be understood by the word fame or charity. What do you think? Pushkin called fame a bright patch on a ragged garment. We all understand it as Pushkin does. That is, more or less subjectively, but no one has yet given a clear logical definition of the word. I would give a good deal for such a definition. Why do you feel such a need for it? You see, if we knew what fame is, the means of attaining it might also perhaps be known to us, said the first-class passenger after a moment's thought. I must tell you, sir, that when I was younger, I strove after celebrity with every fiber of my being. To be popular was my craze, so to speak. For the sake of it I studied, worked, sat up at night, neglected my meals, and I fancy, as far as I can judge without partiality, I had all the natural gifts for attaining it. To begin with, I am an engineer by profession. In the course of my life I have built in Russia some two dozen magnificent bridges— I have laid aqueducts for three towns. I have worked in Russia, in England, in Belgium. Secondly, 
I am the author of several special treatises in my own line. And thirdly, my dear sir, I have from a boy had a weakness for chemistry. Studying that science in my leisure hours, I discovered methods of obtaining certain organic acids, so that you will find my name in all the foreign manuals of chemistry. I have always been in the service, I have risen to the grade of actual civil counsellor, and I have an unblemished record. I will not fatigue your attention by enumerating my works and my merits. I will only say that I have done far more than some celebrities. And yet, here I am in my old age, I am getting ready for my coffin, so to say, and I am as celebrated as that black dog yonder running on the embankment. How can you tell? Perhaps you are celebrated. Hmm. Well, we will test it at once. Tell me, have you ever heard the name Krikunov? The vis-a-vis -vis raised his eyes to the ceiling, thought a minute, and laughed. <laughs> no, I haven't, he said. That is my surname. You, a man of education, getting on in years, have never heard of me. A convincing proof. It is evident that in my efforts to gain fame I have not done the right thing at all. I did not know the right way to set to work, and trying to catch fame by the tail got on the wrong side of her. What is the right way to set to work? Well, the devil only knows. Talent, you say? Genius? Originality? <laughs> Not a bit of it, sir. People have lived and made a career side by side with me who were worthless, trivial, and even contemptible compared with me. They did not do one-tenth of the work I did, did not put themselves out, were not distinguished for their talents, and did not make an effort to be celebrated. But just look at them. Their names are continually in the newspaper and on men's lips. If you are not tired of listening, I will illustrate it by an example. Some years ago I built a bridge in the town of K. I must tell you that the dullness of that scurvy little town was terrible. If it had not been for women and cards, I believe I should have gone out of my mind. Well, it's an old story. I was so bored that I got into an affair with a singer. Everyone was enthusiastic about her, the devil only knows why. To my thinking she was—what shall I say—an ordinary, commonplace creature like lots of others. The hussy was empty-headed, ill-tempered, greedy, and what's more she was a fool. She ate and drank a vast amount, slept till five o'clock in the afternoon, and I fancy did nothing else. She was looked upon as a cocotte, and that was indeed her profession. But when people wanted to refer to her in a literary fashion, they called her an actress and a singer. I used to be devoted to the theatre, and therefore this fraudulent pretense of being an actress made me furiously indignant. My young lady had not the slightest right to call herself an actress or a singer. She was a creature entirely devoid of talent, devoid of feeling, a pitiful creature, one might say. As far as I can judge, she sang disgustingly. The whole charm of her art lay in her kicking up her legs on every suitable occasion and not being embarrassed when people walked into her dressing-room. She usually selected translated vaudevilles with singing in them and opportunities for disporting herself in male attire, in tights. In fact, it was— Ah! Well, I ask your attention. As I remember now, a public ceremony took place to celebrate the opening of a newly constructed bridge. There was a religious service, there were many speeches, telegrams, and so on. 
I hung about my cherished creation, you know, all the while afraid that my heart would burst with the excitement of an author. It's an old story, and there's no need for false modesty, and so I will tell you that my bridge was a magnificent work. It was not a bridge, but a picture, a perfect delight. And who would not have been excited when the whole town came to the opening? Ah, I thought, now the eyes of all the public will be on me. Where shall I hide myself? Well, I need not have worried myself, sir, alas. Except the official personages, no one took the slightest notice of me. They stood in a crowd on the river bank, gazed like sheep at the bridge, and did not concern themselves to know who had built it. And it was from that time, by the way, that I began to hate our estimable public. Damnation take them! Well, to continue, all at once the public became agitated. A whisper ran through the crowd. A smile came on their faces. Their shoulders began to move. They must have seen me, I thought. A likely idea. I looked, and my singer, with a train of young scamps, was making her way through the crowd. The eyes of the crowd were hurriedly following this procession. A whisper began in a thousand voices, that so-and-so, charming, bewitching. Then it was they noticed me. A couple of young milksops, local amateurs of the scenic art, I presume, looked at me, exchanged glances, and whispered, "'That's her lover!' "'How do you like that?' And an unprepossessing individual in a top hat, with a chin that badly needed shaving, hung around me, shifting from one foot to the other, then turned to me with the words, "'Do you know who that lady is walking on the other bank? That's so-and-so. Her voice is beneath all criticism, but she has a most perfect mastery of it.' "'Can you tell me,' I asked the unprepossessing individual, "'who built this bridge?' "'Why, but really don't know,' answered the individual. "'Some engineer, I expect.' "'And who built the cathedral in your town?' I asked again. Oh, "'I really can't tell you.' Then I asked him who was considered the best teacher in K, who the best architect, and to all my questions the unprepossessing individual answered that he did not know. "'And tell me, please,' I asked in conclusion, "'with whom is that singer living?' "'With some engineer called Krikunov. "'Well, how do you like that, sir? "'But to proceed.' There are no minnesingers or bards nowadays, and celebrity is created almost exclusively by the newspapers. The day after the dedication of the bridge, I greedily snatched up the local messenger and looked for myself in it. I spent a long time running my eyes over all the four pages, and at last there it was. Hurrah! I began reading. Yesterday, in beautiful weather, before a vast concourse of people, in the presence of His Excellency the Governor of the province, so-and-so, and other dignitaries, the ceremony of the dedication of the newly constructed bridge took place, uh, and so on. Towards the end, our talented actress so-and-so, the favorite of the K public, was present at the dedication, looking very beautiful. I need not say that her arrival created a sensation. The star was wearing, uh, and so on. They might have given me one word, half a word. Petty as it seems, I actually cried with vexation. I consoled myself with the reflection that the provinces are stupid, 
and one could expect nothing of them, and for celebrity one must go to the intellectual centers, to Petersburg and to Moscow. And as it happened, at that very time, there was a work of mine in Petersburg which I had sent in for a competition. The date on which the result was to be declared was at hand. I took leave of K and went to Petersburg. It is a long journey from K to Petersburg, and that I might not be bored on the journey, I took a reserved compartment and, well, of course, I took my singer. We set off, and all the way we were eating, drinking champagne, and tra-la-la. But behold, at last we reached the intellectual center, I arrived on the very day the result was declared, and had the satisfaction, my dear sir, of celebrating my own success. My work received the first prize. Hurrah! Next day I went out along the Nevsky and spent seventy kopecks on various newspapers. I hastened to my hotel room, lay down on the sofa, and controlling a quiver of excitement made haste to read. I ran through one newspaper. Nothing. I ran through a second. Nothing either. My God! At last, in the fourth, I lighted upon the following paragraph. Yesterday, the well-known provincial actress so-and-so arrived by express in Petersburg. We note with pleasure that the climate of the South has had a beneficial effect on our fair friend. Her charming stage appearance—and I don't remember the rest—much lower down that paragraph I found, printed in the smallest type, first prize in the competition was a judge to an engineer called so-and-so. That was all, and to make things better— they even misspelt my name. Instead of Krikunov, it was Kirkutlov. So much for your intellectual center. But that was not all. By the time I left Petersburg, a month later, all the newspapers were vying with one another in discussing our incomparable, divine, highly talented actress, and my mistress was referred to not by her surname, but by her Christian name and her father's. Some years later I was in Moscow. I was summoned there by a letter, in the mayor's own handwriting, to undertake a work for which Moscow, in its newspapers, had been clamoring for over a hundred years. In the intervals of my work I delivered five public lectures, with a philanthropic object, in one of the museums there. One would have thought that was enough to make one known to the whole town for three days at least, wouldn't one? But alas— not a single Moscow Gazette said a word about me. There was something about houses on fire, about an operetta, sleeping town councillors, drunken shopkeepers, about everything, but about my work, my plans, my lectures, mum. And a nice set they are in Moscow. I got into a tram, it was packed full, there were ladies and military men and students of both sexes, creatures of all sorts in couples. "'I am told the town council has sent for an engineer to plan such and such a work,' I said to my neighbor, so loudly that all the tram could hear. "'Do you know the name of the engineer?' My neighbor shook his head. The rest of the public took a cursory glance at me, and in all their eyes I read, "'I don't know.' "'I am told there is someone giving lectures in such and such a museum,' I persisted, trying to get up a conversation. "'I hear it is interesting.' No one even nodded. Evidently they had not all of them heard of the lectures, and the ladies were not even aware of the existence of the museum. 
All that would not have mattered, but imagine, my dear sir, the people suddenly leaped to their feet and struggled to the windows. What was it? What was the matter? Look! Look! My neighbor nudged me. Do you see that dark man getting into that cab? That's the famous runner, King. And the whole tram began talking breathlessly of the runner who was then absorbing the brains of Moscow. I could give you ever so many other examples, but I think that is enough. Now, let us assume that I am mistaken about myself, that I am a wretchedly boastful and incompetent person. But apart from myself, I might point to many of my contemporaries, men remarkable for their talent and industry, who have nevertheless died unrecognized. Are Russian navigators, chemists, physicists, mechanicians, and agriculturists popular with the public? Do our cultivated masses know anything of Russian artists, sculptors, and literary men? Some old literary hack, hard-working and talented, will wear away the doorstep of the publisher's offices for thirty-three years, cover reams of paper, be had up for liable twenty times, and yet not step beyond his ant-heap. Can you mention to me a single representative of our literature who would have become celebrated if the rumor had not been spread over the earth that he had been killed in a duel, gone out of his mind, been sent into exile, or had cheated at cards? The first-class passenger was so excited that he dropped his cigar out of his mouth and got up. Yes, he went on fiercely, and side by side with these people I can quote you hundreds of all sorts of singers, acrobats, buffoons, whose names are known to every baby. Yes. The door creaked, there was a draft, and an individual of forbidding aspect, wearing an Inverness coat, a top hat, and blue spectacles, walked into the carriage. The individual looked round at the seats, frowned, and went on further. "'Do you know who that is?' There came a timid whisper from the furthest corner of the compartment. "'That is N. N, the famous Tula card-sharper, who was had up in connection with the Y bank affair.' "'There you are!' laughed the first-class passenger. "'He knows a Tula card-sharper, but ask him whether he knows Semiratsky, Tchaikovsky, or Solofyov the philosopher. He'll shake his head. It is swinish!' Three minutes passed in silence. "'Allow me in my turn to ask you a question,' said the vis-à-vis -vis timidly, clearing his throat. "'Do you know the name of Pushkov?' "'Pushkov. Hmm. Pushkov. No, I don't know it.' "'That is my name,' said the vis-à-vis, -vis, overcome with embarrassment. "'Then you don't know it. And yet—' I have been a professor at one of the Russian universities for thirty-five years, a member of the Academy of Science, have published more than one work. The first-class passenger and the vis-à-vis -vis looked at each other and burst out laughing. A HAPPY MAN The passenger train is just starting from Bologo, the junction on the Petersburg-Moscow line. In a second-class smoking compartment, five passengers sit dozing, shrouded in the twilight of the carriage. They had just had a meal, and now, snugly ensconced in their seats, they are trying to sleep. Stillness. The door opens, 
and in there walks a tall, lanky figure, straight as a poker, with a ginger-colored hat and a smart overcoat wonderfully suggestive of a journalist in Jules Verne or on the comic stage. The figure stands still in the middle of the compartment for a long while, breathing heavily, screwing up his eyes and peering at the seats. No, wrong again, he mutters. What the deuce? It's positively revolting. No, the wrong one again. One of the passengers stares at the figure and utters a shout of joy. Ivan Alexievich, what brings you here? Is it you? The poker-like gentleman starts, stares blankly at the passenger, claps his hands with delight. Ha! Pyotr Petrovich, he says. How many summers, how many winters! I didn't know you were in this train. How are you getting on? I'm all right. The only thing is, my dear fellow, I've lost my compartment, and I simply can't find it. What an idiot I am! I ought to be thrashed. The poker-like gentleman sways a little unsteadily and sniggers. Queer things do happen, he continues. I stepped out just for the second bell to get a glass of brandy. I got it, of course. Well, I thought, since it's a long way to the next station, it would be as well to have a second glass. While I was thinking about it and drinking it, the third bell rang. I ran like mad and jumped into the first carriage. I am an idiot. I am the son of a hen. But you seem to be in good spirits, observes Pyotr Petrovich. Come and sit down. There's room and a welcome. No, no, I'm off to look for my carriage. Goodbye. You'll fall between the carriages in the dark if you don't look out. Sit down, and when we get to a station, you'll find your own compartment. Sit down. Ivan Alexievich heaves a sigh and irresolutely sits down facing Pyotr Petrovich. He is visibly excited and fidgets as though he were sitting on thorns. Where are you traveling to? Pyotr Petrovich inquires. I? Into space. There's such a turmoil in my head that I couldn't tell you where I'm going myself. I go where fate takes me. Ha <laughs> ha! My dear fellow, have you ever seen a happy fool? No? Well then, take a look at one. You behold the happiest of mortals. Yes. Don't you see something in my face? Well, one can see you're a bit, um, a tiny bit so-so. I dare say I look awfully stupid just now. Ah, it's a pity I haven't a looking-glass. I should like to look at my counting-house. My dear fellow, I feel I am turning into an idiot, honor bright. Ha, <laughs> ha, would you believe it? I'm on my honeymoon. Am I not the son of a hen? You? Do you mean to say you are married? Today, my dear boy, we came away straight after the wedding. Congratulations and the usual questions follow. Well, you are a fellow, laughs Pyotr Petrovich. That's why you are rigged out such a dandy. Yes, indeed. To complete the illusion, I've even sprinkled myself with scent. I am over my ears in vanity. No care, no thought, nothing but a sensation of something or other. Deuce knows what to call it. Beatitude or something. I've never felt so grand in my life. Ivan Alexievich shuts his eyes and waggles his head. I'm revoltingly happy, he says. Just think, in a minute I shall go to my compartment. There on the seat near the window is sitting a being who is, so to say, devoted to you with her whole being, a little blonde with a little nose, little fingers, 
my little darling, my angel, my little puppet, philoxera of my soul, and her little foot, good God, a little foot not like our beetle-crushers, but something miniature, fairy-like, allegorical. I could pick it up and eat it, that little foot. Oh, but you don't understand. You're a materialist, of course. You begin analyzing at once, and one thing and another. You are cold-hearted bachelors, that's what you are. When you get married, you'll think of me. Where's Ivan Alexievich now, you'll say? Yes, so in a minute I'm going to my compartment. There she is, waiting for me with impatience, in joyful anticipation of my appearance. She'll have a smile to greet me. I sit down beside her and take her chin with my two fingers. Ivan Alexievich waggles his head and goes off into a chuckle of delight. Then I lay my noddle on her shoulder and put my arm around her waist. Around all is silence, you know, poetic twilight. I could embrace the whole world at such a moment. Pyotr Petrovitch, allow me to embrace you. Delighted, I am sure. The two friends embrace, while the passengers laugh in chorus, and the happy bridegroom continues, and to complete the idiocy, or as the novelists say, to complete the illusion, one goes to the refreshment room and tosses off two or three glasses, and then something happens in your head and your heart finer than you can read in a fairy tale. I am a man of no importance, but I feel as though I were limitless. I embrace the whole world. The passengers, looking at the tipsy and blissful bridegroom, are infected by his cheerfulness and no longer feel sleepy. Instead of one listener, Ivan Alexievich now has an audience of five. He wriggles and splutters, gesticulates and prattles on without ceasing. He laughs, and they all laugh. "'Gentlemen, gentlemen, don't think so much. Damn all this analysis. If you want to drink, drink. No need to philosophize as to whether it's bad for you or not. Damn all this philosophy and psychology.' The guard walks through the compartment. "'My dear fellow,' the bridegroom addresses him, "'when you pass through the carriage number 209, look out for a lady in a grey hat with a white bird and tell her I'm here.' "'Yes, sir, only there isn't a number 209 in this train. There's a 219.' "'Well, 219, then. It's all the same. Tell that lady, then, that her husband is all right.' Ivan Alexievich suddenly clutches his head and groans. "'Husband! Lady! All in a minute! Husband! Ha-ha! I am a puppy that needs thrashing, and here I am a husband! Ha-ha! Idiot! But think of her! Yesterday she was a little girl, a midget! It is simply incredible!' "'Nowadays it really seems strange to see a happy man,' observes one of the passengers. "'One as soon expects to see a white elephant.' "'Yes, and whose fault is it?' says Ivan Alexievich, stretching his long legs and thrusting out his feet with their very pointed toes. "'If you are not happy, it's your own fault. Yes, what else do you suppose it is? Man is the creator of his own happiness. If you want to be happy, you will be. But you don't want to be.' you obstinately turn away from happiness. Why, what next? How do you make that out? Very simply, nature has ordained that at a certain stage in his life man should love. When that time comes, you should love like a house on fire. But you won't heed the dictates of nature. You keep waiting for something. 
What's more, it's laid down by law that the normal man should enter upon matrimony. There's no happiness without marriage. When the propitious moment has come, get married. There's no use in shilly-shallying. But you don't get married. You keep waiting for something. Then the Scriptures tell us that wine maketh glad the heart of man. If you feel happy, and you want to feel better still, then go to the refreshment bar and have a drink. The great thing is not to be too clever, but to follow the beaten track. The beaten track is a grand thing. You say that man is the creator of his own happiness. How the devil is he the creator of it when a toothache or an ill-natured mother-in-law is enough to scatter his happiness to the winds? Everything depends on chance. If we had an accident at this moment, you'd sing a different tune. Oh, stuff and nonsense, retorts the bridegroom. Railway accidents only happen once a year. I'm not afraid of an accident, for there is no reason for one. Accidents are exceptional. Confound them. I don't want to talk of them. Oh, I believe we're stopping at a station. Where are you going now, says Pyotr Petrovitch, to Moscow or somewhere further south? Why, bless you, how could I go somewhere further south when I'm on my way to the north? But Moscow isn't in the north. I know that, but we're on our way to Petersburg, says Ivan Alexievich. We are going to Moscow, mercy on us. To Moscow? What do you mean? says the bridegroom in amazement. It's queer. For what station did you take your ticket? For Petersburg. In that case, I congratulate you. You got into the wrong train. There follows a moment of silence. The bridegroom gets up and looks blankly round the company. Yes, Pyotr Petrovich explains. You must have jumped into the wrong train at Bologo. After your glass of brandy, you succeeded in getting into the down train. Ivan Alexievich turns pale, clutches his head, and begins pacing rapidly about the carriage. Ah, oh, idiot that I am, he says in indignation. Scoundrel! The devil devour me! Whatever am I to do now? Why, my wife is in that train. She's there all alone, expecting me, consumed by anxiety. Ah, oh, I am a motley fool! The bridegroom falls on the seat and writhes as though someone had trodden on his corns. I am an un unhappy man, he moans. What am I to do? What am I to do? There, there. The passengers try to console him. It's all right. You must telegraph to your wife and try to change into the Petersburg Express. In that way, you'll overtake her. The Petersburg Express, weeps the bridegroom, the creator of his own happiness. And how am I to get a ticket for the Petersburg Express? All my money is with my wife. The passengers, laughing and whispering together, make a collection and furnish the happy man with funds. You've been listening to The First Class Passenger and A Happy Man by Anton Chekhov. He was the closest of observers, and his stories always move beyond obvious expectations. Don't tell me the moon is shining, he once said. Show me the glint of light on broken glass. Chekhov's narratives are closely observed and beautifully written, with more interest in honest observation than with passing judgment. To judge between good or bad, he said, between successful and unsuccessful, 
would take the eye of a god. I'm Richard Figge, and this has been for Reading Out Loud. Let me know what stories and authors you would like to hear. I learned so much from your suggestions. Drop me a line, if you will, at rfigge, that's R-F as in Frank, I-G-G-E, at Worcester dot edu. That's it for tonight. I hope you'll join me again next week. In the meantime, be well, be happy, stay safe. All the best. 